Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewertz, Vice President of the North Star Meetings Group Sports Division and the Executive Editor and Publisher of Sports Travel. And our guest on this episode is the longtime President and CEO of U.S. Squash, Kevin Klipstein. You may be aware that Squash was recently added to the program for the 2028 Olympic Summer Games in Los Angeles, the culmination of a years-long effort to get the sport into the Games. We will be talking about that effort, what put the sport over the top this time around, and what the participation trends are for a sport that is spreading well beyond its traditional roots in the Northeast. But before we begin... This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by Greater Ontario, California. Greater Ontario is ready for action. With an international airport, over 6,000 hotel rooms, and 300 days of sunshine, they are the perfect location for your sporting competition or conference. Easy access, comfortable accommodations, and happy fans, it's all here. Visit go-cal.org today for more information. And now, on to the conversation. This year, Kevin Klipstein will celebrate 20 years at the helm of U.S. Squash, the national governing body for the racket sport that's been steadily growing in participation and membership over that time. While the NGB has seen remarkable success through projects such as a national training center in Philadelphia and exposure in new markets, the sport itself for years has been seeking a holy grail of sorts. That effort, of course, is a place on the Olympic program. That effort began with a campaign to get into the 2012 Games in London and in each subsequent games after that. But for one reason or another, and there were different reasons each time, the sport could never quite clear the hurdle. But when it came time to pitch for the 2028 games in Los Angeles, everything finally lined up perfectly. Squash was one of several sports approved for the program, which of course represents a whole new world of opportunity for leaders like Klipstein, who spend their entire days thinking about ways to expose the sport they love to even more people. And as you'll hear, one of the beauties of squash at the highest level is is that its glass showcase courts can be stationed just about anywhere. In fact, international events have been staged outside the pyramids in Egypt and on building rooftops, to name a few. Where exactly it'll be staged in Los Angeles remains to be seen, as will its potential place in the 2032 games in Australia and beyond. But as you'll hear in this conversation, the sport has plans to grow regardless of its upcoming presence on sport's largest stage. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Kevin Klipstein, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks so much, Jason. Good to be with you. It's great to connect again. It has been quite a while, I think, since we spoke last, and there is certainly a lot to talk about in the world of squash. It's been fascinating over the years just watching the development of the sport, both in participation, membership, uh, facilities, and we'll talk about that, I imagine, here while we have you with us, Kevin. But of course, the most important thing, I think, for the sport that's happened here in recent weeks and months was the announcement that it will be officially on the program when the Olympic Games come to Los Angeles in 2028. I know well that that was a years-long effort. We talk about the long play a lot in the sports industry, and this was certainly that. So right off the bat, Kevin, congratulations to you and everyone at the international level who was involved in that effort. We know it's not easy for a sport to break through, and after uh, several attempts, you you obviously did. So I'm curious right off the bat, Kevin, just to kind of get your sense of what that moment was like. Like when you got the news, it was a two-step process, of course, just to have the recommendation to be on the program and then the final vote. But that first time, Kevin, when you heard that this was actually going to happen after you know several attempts, what was what was that moment like for you? 
Uh, well, thank you. Thanks for the congratulations. It's obviously a really proud moment for the sport just globally. I mean, it's a, it's a large global community of 20 million players and, and a really robust pro tour. So to be able to have our athletes in the brightest stage in the world is terrific and something they definitely deserve. When uh, we sort of heard the news a little bit in stages, such as, well, it's likely and you never know until it's done. Uh, so I, I think a little bit of, of relief and, and disbelief to be honest. And I, it didn't really sink in for me until a day or two later when I saw our own newsletter go out to our community with, you know, the marks and the LA 28, et cetera. And so that was, I got a little bit emotional at that point. And so, uh, again, it's sort of in, in a bit of another world, like really, did this really just happen after a few decades and, and some really close, close misses? Yeah, you've been involved with the sport for decades yourself, Kevin. Then uh, this was, we talk about the efforts. I think this was the fifth official effort for the sport to get on the games going back as, as far as the London games, if I recall in, in 2012, when this was at least a formal effort to try and get on. And there are any number of reasons why a sport may or may not make the program in any given year. But this was one. Can you just walk us through a little bit what the campaign was like? Obviously, the at the international level, with this being a games in LA, of course, they were going to involve uh, the US national governing body and, and your team in the effort. But can you talk a little bit about maybe what what do you think put you over the edge this time and, and how you guys got involved in that discussion? Sure. So uh, when when we knew the games would be in Los Angeles early on, we got together with the World Squash Federation, our international federation, and the PSA, the Professional Squash Association, which runs the men's and women's tour. And we started those conversations, gosh, a good 18 months before we had the opportunity to, to pitch and it took some time because those organizations have not always been on the same page. But over time, there's a lot of trust that got built up. And so when it came to being responsive to how the Los Angeles Organizing Committee conducted the process, we were ready and we were we were uh, really closely aligned in terms of how we wanted to approach it and what each organization's roles were and what our strengths were. And so I think that made a big difference in terms of just the level of international and national collaboration. And then uh, in terms of you know what what's different, uh, I mean, every every games, I think, has a different sort of political currents uh, around the games themselves, but also around what game, what sports are being considered. And probably the biggest difference, I would say, was just the process being run out of the United States by the L.A. Organizing Committee. They just did a really fantastic job of being very disciplined, business-like, and professional about it. And I think that helped us because generally on the face of it, when you look at squash, most people say, really, you're not in the games? That doesn't make any sense. And so you know, we, we make a good case, just the fact that we're so international. Uh, the numbers are there. There are countries and regions from around the world that that excel in it, that don't often excel in sports and and, and so many more, it being a clean sport, et cetera. And and so we checked the boxes and it, it was just nice to be able to flow through the process without anything hanging us up. Yeah, I would imagine you check a number of other boxes as well for what the IOC is looking for and even what the LA organizers were looking for. I mean, it's a, and we can talk about this, but it's a sport that doesn't have an enormous footprint as far as size of the venue. You've got uh, uh, male, female quality and not uh, an enormous number of athletes, which I know is uh, of concern as well. So it, it seems to me, Kevin, I've always kind of thought that was squash that you've got uh, even those boxes any given year 
year to year, which work in your favor. I imagine that must have been part of the pitch as well. Absolutely. We're, we're low cost, low complexity, but high international interest in, in sort of non-traditional regions. So, And I think that was certainly helpful given some of the other sports that were included. And uh, it's nice to have an opportunity now to focus on proving ourselves and pro- proving that we belong for the long term. Yeah, I noticed in LA, you've also got a nice benefactor, uh, Mark Walter, the co-owner of the Dodgers, is a big uh, squash advocate as well. So I think it never hurts to have uh, high-profile people, particularly in the in the host city area, to at least uh, you know kind of be there to speak to the sports behalf. I know you know one person alone doesn't make a difference, but I'm sure having people like that in your corner uh, also doesn't hurt. Sure, and, and I think a bigger picture, the idea of having people who are serious about moving sports forward, looking at squash and saying, hey, there's a lot of upside to this sport. So in the U.S. in particular, the sport isn't particularly well-known. You ask people what squash is, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know. And uh, that's different in the rest of the world. However, when people like Mark Walter say, yeah, I can see real upside here, that combined with the growth that we're already showing, I think you know, it, it definitely didn't hurt. Yeah. What's the market like for the sport in Southern California or in, in the West? I think when I think of squash, I tend to think of the Northeast. Give me an idea of kind of how the sport's been growing and and particularly in that part of the world, is there a decent squash scene in Southern California? We would say it's uh, there's there's a lot of potential in Southern California. I mean, the reason people affiliate the sport with the Northeast is that's where it started, and and you know our base is certainly sort of you know Boston to DC. However, in the last thirty years, we've grown out into the Southeast. We're increasingly strong in Texas. The Pacific Northwest has always been an area of strength. The Bay Area has grown tremendously over the last 15 or so years. And Southern California, interestingly, as we explore more about the opportunities to develop the sport there, what we see is a ton of potential. There aren't a lot of courts and there aren't a lot of programs, but those that are there are very successful. So it's it's a really nice alignment where there's the second largest city in the country with an appetite for squash, but we're not meeting that demand. And so it's a great opportunity for us to go in and really develop the market, uh, amplify our growth, and also shift people's perceptions, as you said, in terms of it being a Northeast sport that it's like, hey, look, this this is a this is a national sport played across the country. And so um, uh, we're looking forward to changing that perception and reality. Right. And obviously for the average person playing, they're likely going to be playing in a dedicated squash court. But I've seen uh, some of the things that have happened, Kevin, over the years internationally. Squash has that ability to essentially drop a a glass court almost anywhere. We've seen it in front of the pyramids in Egypt. We've seen it on tops of buildings. Uh, You know, it has some some flexibility there, which visually is just amazing to see. And I realize that's probably more for your showcase events and not necessarily the norm for the average squash player. But uh, Kevin, have you already, have there been discussions about what this might look like in Los Angeles as far as what type of venue you might use? Uh, Because it seems like the world is quite literally as open as you want it to be with your sport, at least for a showcase court. Sure. There there are almost too many options. I mean, to your point, we can pretty much drop a glass exhibition court anywhere. And uh, so the World Squash Federation, in collaboration with us, they're working with the LA 28 organizing committee to uh, explore what options there are, what would work best for them, what would work well for the sport, et cetera. So I'm not sure a decision will be made on that anytime soon. 
it's likely that there'll be at least two all glass courts and that could uh, take care of the entire event, uh, potentially up to three. And what's nice about that is we'll supply those all glass courts because we have a lot of experience in that. And then we'll leave those courts behind in a community squash center as a legacy to the game. So they'll they'll get a Olympic uh, squash court as a leave behind. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the jury's still out in terms of, of the location, but we're excited about the potential. Yeah, I like, like the thought of a glass court on the beach right by the pier. You, it seems like the, the world is endless for you, not that you would necessarily want to go outdoors, but you've, you've kind of got that option with the, some of the things that the Federation has done in the past. We do. We, we've got a lot of options. And the other interesting thing about Southern California, too, is the climate and and it's generally pretty predictable and pretty nice and so for example the play la program i don't know if you've heard about it it's mm-hmm. uh in the park with the parks and rec department it's got the financial backing of the olympic movement and so we have kids in those programs at parks hitting against uh, single wall and three wall quote courts and that will continue to be an effort of ours to co-locate actual outdoor courts there and then also work with the LA um, Unified School District to uh, to get programming uh, and and actually get courts hopefully on on school campuses. So uh, the idea of playing outside, I think, even by then, won't be born or new. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question, just on the Olympic front, and then we'll segue into just some broader discussion on the sport as well. Uh, the Olympic Games is just so interesting, as you know, the timing of things. And we're seeing that already, uh, you know, in this cycle with some of the new sports that will be debuting in Paris. Even before you get to L.A., Kevin, you, there's going to be a decision on the next Olympic Games in, mm-hmm. in Brisbane in 32. And you won't even have had a chance to you know, show what you can do on the games when you're, uh, you know, the sport is going to have to be thinking about how do you stay on the program? Are you aware? I mean, are, are there discussions already uh, just on kind of what the long-term play is here to make sure this isn't just a, a one and done that you can you know kind of stay on the program for a while. It, it's a difficult proposition because you won't even have had the chance to showcase what you do before that next decision comes. We, we saw that with breaking, you know, as an example in, in Paris, uh, not being on the LA program and they haven't even had a chance to, to showcase their sports. I know it's a concern uh, with some of the ones that get on. Sure. So within a day of, of hearing that we're including LA 28, we were obviously talking about Brisbane 2032 and, and what we can do to make sure we're viewed positively by them as well. I think part of that is uh, the decision around the location for where it's hosted and for you know future organizers to be able to at least envision how that would be successful and how that could be successful in the context of, of their hosting the games. Uh, and then I think the other is demonstrating the impact and the real growth of the sport as a consequence of being hosted there. So, for example, Australia has a really rich history of of squash uh, and uh, history of great, you know, world champions. And so, the idea of using the sport as a tool to sort of uh, advance and reignite their squash programming could be a potential angle. So, for us, showing that real growth, especially in Southern California, but just in general in the U.S., uh, feels like to us an important thing to establish in the next few years. So that's one of the things that we're working hard to do. And I guess the final thing is sort of what investments will be made in terms of the presentation of the sport uh, sort of on the court from a television perspective, but also just in terms of the production overall of the event. So uh, the idea that once we get to the Olympic Games, people will be more used to seeing squash on TV 
uh, and what that looks like uh, even before we're at the event. So that that should play into it as well. Yeah, I, I thought that was the last question. Now I just thought of one more uh, for you, sort of Olympic related, but it segues into a, a broader discussion. So, you know, the Olympics is great. It's just one thing, uh, you know, uh, every four years. And of course, you're running a, a national governing body that uh, lives day to day. But has the conversation now shifted to, in any extent, Kevin, as far as you've got this opportunity now, you know, sitting there down the road four years from now? as to what you guys do as a national governing body, just to raise awareness uh, of the sport or some of your own strategies that may not have been the case if you didn't have that uh, you know, coin sitting out there a few years down the road? Well, interestingly, even throughout the whole process over the last decade or so, uh, people could criticize the sport at the international level to say, well, there's a lot of resources and focus on trying to get the sport into the Olympics. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. For us as U.S. squash, we've always felt that the strategies that we employ and how we deploy our resources would be the same whether we're in the games or not in the games. And and by that, I mean simply making the sport more accessible, uh, driving awareness and lifelong participation and engagement and exploring markets like L.A. that are underdeveloped. And so it's a great confluence of sort of market opportunity and with LA sort of wind behind the back in that region. But our strategies are effectively the same. And, and we, we've seen the Houston market develop really rapidly over the last five years. And so, yes, we'll be paying more attention to Southern California, absolutely, to ensure success. And that there's a huge legacy of growth in that area. However, I'm not sure we wouldn't be sort of pushing into that space anyway. And the strategy in general for growth remains the same, which is um, getting more courts available to more people and more middle and high school uh, uh, programs. You are listening to the Sports Shovel Podcast. This episode is being sponsored by Greater Ontario, California. Greater Ontario is ready for action. With an international airport, over 6,000 hotel rooms, and 300 days of sunshine, they are the perfect location for your sporting competition or conference. Easy access, comfortable accommodations, and happy fans. It's all here. Visit go-cal.org today for more information. And now, back to the conversation. Yeah, well, let's segue, as I said, into a little broader discussion, Kevin, just on the sport and the infrastructure. I think our audience may not be as familiar with squash and what's out there as they are with some of the other sports. We talk about the long game that we just saw, of course, breaking through on the Olympic program, but you've had other long efforts, including the effort to create a national training center. And and that has developed here in the last couple of years in Philadelphia. Why don't you, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that project and and just some of the other infrastructure that's in place for the sport because that looks like a pretty extraordinary venue and I know that was many years in the making as well. Sure, I mean, it's it's uh so what you're talking about is Arlen Specter US Squash Center which is a 75,000 square foot center uh, in uh, the heart of Drexel University's campus which is um in West Philadelphia and just a few blocks north of University of Pennsylvania. So uh, we built a center within an existing um, historic building, an armory drill hall, and we built uh, 20 courts, our headquarters, a high-performance center, and a hall of fame, and uh, various community programs also operate in the center. And so it was difficult to imagine scaling up as a sport without really a home for the sport. We host about 20 national championships collectively. And so creating a first rate experience, uh, consistent experience and be able to control that was important to us, but also to be able to model 
what we saw as community squash programming in the area. So West Philadelphia is a very uh, diverse neighborhood. It's actually uh, one of uh, federally designated promise zones. So the idea that we're building a community of uh, everyone from our high-performance athletes all the way to kids who live locally in the area who are generally underserved um, and welcoming um, everybody into the center uh, to build a, a cohesive uh, community was was important for us to model. It's it's happening all over the country, but for us to sort of buy into that model and advocate for it and show how it works was important. So it's it's been a huge success uh, for uh, all sorts of reasons, sort of the day-to-day example, obviously our ability to support high-performance athletes, and we have four women in the top 15 in the world, and so we're really making progress there. Our men are getting better and, and climbing the rankings as well. And then our ability to host host major events is we do it more efficiently and we we do it better. So it's it's been a home run, and uh, that's one foundational component that provides us some core strength and competencies that we didn't have before. Right, squash obviously a very specific sport with specific requirements for your field of play. What's happening, Kevin, kind of nationally as far as development of squash courts? Is it a challenge? Is it an easier conversation? Uh, what does that look like right now for you? In general, it's looking very good. The sport, a lot of people won't know this because they probably don't even know squash. However, the U.S. transitioned to the international format of the game in the late 80s, early 1990s, and that meant we needed slightly wider courts. So there's a major investment in infrastructure over that 20-year period or so. However, uh, that was a transition from a community perspective. And having been through that transition now, we still have really core strength in, you know, a lot of schools, a lot of clubs have squash boards. And what we're we're seeing now is the development of, well, more schools are continuing to, to build centers, more colleges are adding programs, more colleges are adding club programs, whether they have varsity or not. Uh, so there's real, there's sort of this core foundational strength of the sport, but the two areas of development are sort of straight commercial clubs we're seeing open up. And then, as I mentioned, sort of these community squash centers. So for example, in San Diego and in Atlanta and Portland, Maine, so some really varied locations, you have basically clubs, facilities that provide some narrow and deep community programming, uh, education, but also squash instruction, all the way through to just being a general club for the neighborhood while hosting middle and high school uh, team programs too. But then you also have have straight commercial clubs opening. There's been three or four just in Manhattan in the last few years post-COVID. So uh, when you start seeing those kinds of investments in, in sort of dense areas and them being successful, that's a, a good sign for us. And so uh, we're growing, the core capacity is growing. And then the final thing that we'll be doing is innovating on what a squash court actually is. Because to your point, it's a pretty custom field of play. And we need to make sure that uh, it's relatively inexpensive and easy to build. Let me ask you about participation as well. Uh, we've obviously, like everyone else, have documented what's been happening with with pickleball. And as we talk about, it's not just pickleball, uh, racket sports in general. Uh, when you look at uh, SFIA and some of the other groups that track participation, uh, tennis is up, racquetball is up. I've seen those reports as well, Kevin. Squash uh, casual use is, is way up as well. Uh, I mean, are you seeing that and sensing that uh, as well, that participation in general is on the rise for your specific sport? Absolutely. You know, by our numbers, we've doubled in participation in the last decade. 
and that's sort of obviously with a bit of a COVID dip. Sure. Um, uh, COVID uh, hurt us pretty badly just because, you know, generally you're indoors breathing heavily close to each other. So, but uh, we, we adapted pretty quickly. We, we, uh, all the, the, all the ventilation was, um, was improved considerably and the youth sports uh, market came back faster than the adults, but the adults are sort of equal to or greater than where we were pre-COVID. So yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing that demand. Again, the challenge is the courts. And so whereas pickleball can take over tennis or lacrosse can take over football or soccer, uh, we have to sort of build that over time. On the positive, what, what we see is sort of just sort of this rational, steady, supportable growth. And so we don't see any sort of peaks that maybe some of these other sports might experience where, you know, it's, it, it grows so quickly that it can't be supported by, let's say, quality programming or qualified coaches and things like that. And therefore sort of misses that opportunity. I feel like we're just sort of incrementally continuing to grow and, and the, being included in the Olympics, uh, we can't really undervalue that just in terms of uh, the awareness of the sport and just sort of that. Uh, that validation of, of the sport that we sort of belong uh, within that within that universe. Yeah, for sure. And as a national governing body, you rely on membership, um, like many others do, and and that's been uh, on a steady growth over the years as well, Kevin. I, I imagine you've seen that sort of correlate, not just with participation in the sport, but membership in your own organization. Yeah, absolutely. From from a revenue perspective, over fifteen years, we've seen about ten x growth on that front, and. One thing that we have within the sport, sort of another sort of foundational building block is we always believe technology was a really important point of leverage. So it's a great, great return on investment and for a governing body. And so we have a system called Club Locker, and it does everything from serve facilities as a court booking and reservation system, sort of like an open table for squash courts and other areas, spaces within a facility, to supporting the programming, to supporting tournaments, leagues, ladders, ratings, rankings, and as well as live scoring. So uh, we support all the leagues, all the middle and high school leagues, the college squash league, all the district leagues for adults, uh, singles and doubles. And so what you have is sort of a, a one place to go for the entire squash community. And so, um, for example, you can uh, enter you know, 10 events all at once. People are automatically dropped into the draw. It's much easier for the tournament director to run the event. When people get on site, as they officiate uh, the matches, it's live scored. That can be viewed whether you're halfway around the world or it's on monitors on site. So we're in about 100 facilities, including all the major universities, where it sort of brings the drama of a team match to life. And so, and then all the way to the point of the sport just being accessible. So, hey, where can I go play? And it gives uh, facilities a tool to say, hey, these sports are open and available. Come in and try the sport. So we feel like we have another really strong foundational building block that um, is actually used by a couple other federations, other sports, and also uh, other squash federations around the world. And, you know, just the way the world is going to have a strong technology platform seems really essential. So it's serving us well so far, and, and we're going to keep that momentum going. 
Yeah, I love that. It's always amazing seeing the technologies that every different sport is able to bring to what they do and and the learnings that different sports you wouldn't necessarily think could learn from each other are able to do. It's fascinating. Uh, Kevin, in the time we have left, I mean, I noticed this will be 20 years for you at U.S. Squash later this year. So congratulations on that. So just being able to lead a national governing body for that long is an accomplishment in and of itself. What's what's your story with squash uh, as well, Kevin? How did you even get into this sport and into this game did you play it growing up i did i i, I played growing up i was i was fortunate to uh have access to a, a club with courts and there were some happened to be some some really great coaches who kind of put their arms around the junior community and said hey we're you know we're going to support you in your journey so I was a junior squash player and then ended up playing at Cornell University in the late 80s, early 90s, and actually coached a little bit afterwards and then went on to sort of more business-oriented work. I worked in event production for a while, got into sponsorship and sports marketing, uh, did that at an agency for a few years, and then did that in-house at Sun Microsystems. So we had Formula One and MajorLeagueBaseball.com we launched and the NHL as partners. And so I, I had a pretty broad scope. And then this role came up in, in squash. I said, well, I love squash and I'm certainly qualified. So I tossed my hat in the ring and then 20 years later, here we are. Well, that would explain some of the technology advances uh, as well. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, Kevin, as we said at the outset, it's obviously a terrific time for the sport and the Olympic Games is just such an opportunity. So congratulations again to you and, and to your international colleagues on the successful effort. Um, as we said, uh, the sport is, has been growing on its own, but the showcase that you'll be able to have here in a couple of years is just terrific to think about and exciting to watch. And we'll be watching very closely as well in the lead up up to Los Angeles. But uh, very much appreciate your time, uh, taking the time to chat with us and certainly wishing you and the team the best of luck here in the long road ahead. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for what you do. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on X and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.